Hello, loves. Welcome to the Art of Body Language podcast, where we empower and uplift the dance community while helping them understand their injuries. I am your host, Sherelle Williams, trainer and student physical therapist that helps dancers avoid injury and improve their wellness so they can be the strong and fearless performers they were destined to be. Before I begin this episode, I would like to invite you to reach out to me at theartofbodylanguage at gmail.com with any questions about injuries that you may have or find me on Instagram at smile underscore love underscore lift. Please make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I want your feedback so I can continue to put out content that helps artists. I am here to serve you. Enjoy the rest of the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Art of Body Language podcast. And today we have Kathleen Gaines. She is a former dancer, writer, and is dabbling in the mental health field with her company called Minding the Gap. How are you today, Kathleen? I'm great. How are you? I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) Not too shabby. Um, So tell me about your story. Kathleen, and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. Um, the short answer to that is completely by accident. Um, <laughs> it was uh, none of this was planned. I uh, I started dancing when I was young, like like so many of us did, and was living in upstate New York. Um, when I was fourteen, I left home to go to Pittsburgh Ballet Theater School's um, pre professional program, and then when I was seventeen, I left for San Francisco Ballet School's program. So, you know, I left home at a very young age um, and was training very intensively in classical ballet. And I was a bunhead through and through, um, (laughs) you know, rod straight up my back. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, I, while I was in San Francisco, I sustained my first major injury, which was a stress fracture in my second metatarsal, classic point shoe injury. And um, that had come on the heels of some fairly questionable eating choices. I don't know that I ever had a full-blown eating disorder, but I certainly did have some disordered eating patterns. was not feeding my body properly or Mm -hmm. resting it properly or doing any of those things. So the injury really was inevitable, um, but it really knocked me over. I was in a a good place before the injury. Um, I was moving up. I was progressing. I felt like I was being seen. Um, and then I felt like I just was completely invisible the next moment. So, um, on the heels of that, I, I dealt with my first major depression and I kind of got myself stuck in that depressed, like mental health, physical health, infinity cycle of, you know, never really getting well because you're never really feeling well and you're never really taking care of yourself and all of these things. And so, you know, mentally it just became very difficult for me. Um, eventually I did stop dancing and I came back to Pittsburgh to get a degree in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did not want to write about dance at all. In fact, in fact, I went to school as a fiction major because I was like, please don't make me write about dance. And then of course you're in, you're in fiction class and they're like, write what you know, where's your story about dance? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it always follows you. It does. It does. So I, uh, I started doing more nonfiction writing and eventually took an internship with Dance Magazine. Um, and I've been writing for Dance Magazine ever since for about 10 years. Nice. Um, 
in that time, I started writing a lot about mental health issues and almost accidentally, you know, I was just kind of drawn to it. And it was really through my writing and through the interviews I did with other dancers and um, mental health professionals and, and all of these, these things that I realized that I had quit dancing because of untreated depression. You know, um, people ask all the time because I was, a, you know, I was a talented dancer. I had a lot of promise. Um, you know, why did you quit? And it always changed. It was like, well, I had injuries. Well, I was, I was a little tall, you know, and like those things are all true. But the thing that really stopped me was, um, a, you know, a lack of resources and a lack of awareness around my own mental health. So in writing for Dance Magazine in 2017, I did an article for them called Why Are We Still So Bad at Addressing Dancers' Mental Health? Um, it quickly became one of the most read articles they've ever published, mm. which, I mean, was shocking because you know, it's nice to, it's nice not to feel alone, but it's also really sad to not feel alone or to have quite so much company, yeah. um, on such a difficult subject. Um, so it really motivated me to feel like things haven't changed enough and they need to change. And so, uh, end of 2018, I quit my full-time job and became the founder of Minding the Gap. And we're on a mission to see um, mental health regarded with the same seriousness as physical health in dance culture. That's right. I love wooers and shakers and doers. That's right. <laughs> oh, yes. So uh, explain to the listeners a little bit more what exactly is like mining the gap. What do you offer? Sure. All those good things. Sure. Yeah. So we're about a year old now. Um, it is, uh, I describe it as a social good startup. At this point, we are not a 501c3 charity. We're seeking, um, you know, a sustainable model outside of the philanthropic uh, world. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And I don't know that this is the forum for it, but if anyone ever wanted to talk about it, I'm happy to. Um, and really at this point, it is a research and advocacy effort. Um, and our long-term goal is to, to create solutions and to make those solutions accessible to institutions that want to change the culture within their organization. Um, and then also to individual dancers who want to have um, support that is tailored specifically from, for them, um, that comes from a, a genuine place of understanding of what they're dealing with. Um, so, you know, right now um, I do a lot of my, a lot of my advocacy work is through writing and then I also have, um, you know, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the office talking to an artistic director or having a difficult conversation with a teacher or talking to a parent who's worried about their child and wants to know how to advocate for them. Um, and we're also, hopefully next month, we'll find out if we're funded uh, to do a, a large-scale research project on the mental health uh, of dancers. Because what? I find, yeah. Because I find when I'm in the room with, with leadership, sometimes they're resistant to um, believing me, I guess. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, to me, it's plain as day. And I think to most dancers, it is too. Um, and there's this, there's a quote, it's, you know, without, without the data, you're just another person with an opinion. Yeah. So I wanted the data. So um, a lot of this year has been focused on trying to find the funding and the partnerships to have access to the dancers, to get the money, to do the research. 
and I can smell it. We're very close. So hopefully. <laughs> smells like success. Yeah, I know. It smells like the beginning of a lot of work, but success too. <laughs> to that part. Now, why do you think leadership is resistant? I have some ideas, but I want to hear what you, you have in mind. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think, I think there are a lot of reasons. I think in some cases it's because they feel they're in some way being attacked, right? Like, like to state that mental health is an issue in dance is to criticize dance and therefore dance leadership for being somehow responsible for that. Um, I'm not going to say that's never the case because sometimes it is. Um, but I think very often it really is just that, you know, dance is a culture that prides itself on how little it's changed. Right. Um, and more, the more classical, the form, the more that's true. And things have been done a certain way for such a long time. You know, the, the teacher becomes the apprentice, you know, this is, this is passed down through generations. And what's normalized for one teacher becomes normalized for the student who then becomes the teacher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes abusive behavior is passed down as being normal. Yeah. And it's not because that person is being evil or they don't even know what they're doing is wrong because that's how it is. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think some of it is a little bit of a defensiveness. Um, I think some of it is a genuine lack of understanding of how to change it. It feels like I'm asking a lot and in a way I am, you know, um, but you know, th this, it's not, a, it's not as simple as dance causes mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I think that there is also a great case to be made for the fact that dance attracts dancers who have past experiences of trauma. Um, there was research done in California um, by doctors Paula Thompson and Victoria Jacques, and they found rates of PTSD among dancers at, at almost 25%. Really? Right. So we know that when you're talking about trauma and PTSD, there are things about dance that are very comforting for that. It, you, you know what to expect, right? Um, <laughs> you know what to expect. You know that the class is going to take a certain form. It's going to go in a certain order. There are going to be certain people in the room. I don't think it's as simple as dance is causing this. And I think that many teachers and directors assume that that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, so I think part of it is their, their fear of, of that. I think part of it is their um, fear of not knowing how to change this. Um, and I think some of them genuinely don't think it's their problem. So that's what I was going to say. Like, if you're in this company, you're here to dance and it's a business at the end of the day. So that's what I was going to think. I, I kind of thought that that mentality was. Like, yeah. I, I once asked, I was doing an article on the quote fat talk. Mm -hmm. And I was, I once asked a, a ballet master when, you know, when you do this, when you have the quote fat talk for the dancer, what resources are you giving them to be successful? <laughs> the answer was none. <laughs> and this was not, this was not like a bad guy, right? Like I wasn't interviewing him because he was a bad guy. And, and I specifically asked about mental health and he did. He said, I have it on, on audio on, on, you know, 
that's not our job. Mm. I'm like, these are kids, some of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, and your emotional and mental health affects the dancer. And I feel like the quality of movement that gets put out on stage and how your work or the variation, you know, like, I said this, yeah. <laughs> it's all affecting each other. You know? It's all yeah. intertwined. Very interesting. So what trends have you seen uh, within the dance community in regards to <laughs> mental health? Like, have you seen like specific you said ptsd was one yeah is there anything else Mm -hmm. there's very little research which is part of the reason i want to do some um but what is out there um we know that dancers are three times as likely in fact there's there is a study that even claims five times as likely more likely than the general population to sustain an eating disorder Right. Um, so we know that, you know, it's something that that's the most accepted aspect of mental health in the dance world, but it's still treated as a food issue and not a mental health health issue. I think very often you take a dancer to a nutritionist, it's a mental issue, right? Like this is a psychological issue right? that frankly could have been prevented had we been concerned about things like self-confidence and perfectionism and depression. That part say <laughs> rewind that again everybody listen to that right there yeah that is it yep <laughs> yeah is there anything else that you've seen like i, I know it's in the research and it's not but what else have you seen i'm, I'm not I'm, yeah i mean i know i'm in science and i get the research is important it has that backing but just what else have you noticed Yeah, well, we've done a couple of, Minding the Gap has done a couple of surveys online. The most recent one we did in December of 2019, and that one was looking at what mental health topics dancers were most interested in. Like, Mm -hmm. if we put out information, you know, what do you, what information do you want? What are the, what are your concerns? And their top three concerns were, the first was self-esteem and confidence, with more than 60% of the respondents saying that, uh, it was extremely important. Mm. This was a, almost 350 dancers. Wow. Um, yeah. Nice numbers. All right. I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> um, the second was anxiety and depression, mm. which expresses a, a level of self-awareness that I'm starting to see in dancers. Um, these younger dancers are much more willing, and I think this is true of the entire generation, they're much more willing to, to speak what they need. And, mm. you know, mental health in our, in our general population and in society is, is less stigmatized than it was when I was dancing. But it hasn't necessarily changed in dance, right? Mm. Yeah. And then the third one that they were most interested in was, um, so it was self-esteem and confidence, and then it was depression and anxiety, and then it was dealing with rejection. Okay, yeah. So essentially coping. Um, and what I thought was interesting about that is that we all, when you ask about mental health and dance, you hear about eating disorders first, but you know, eating disorders weren't in the top three topics for the dancers, Hmm, which actually says to me that they actually, they have a fair amount of self-awareness about the fact that there's a lot to worry about before you get to an eating disorder. And what we really need to do is to transition from you know, the, m- many of the best places that have mental health relationships, those relationships are specifically related to eating disorders or 
it's an eating disorder specialist. I'm by no means going to downplay the importance of that, but it's very reactive, right? When, if we can attend to the mental health of the dancer in their development as part of their training, we will see a, a reduction in eating disorder. Right. And it also, like, are you trying to say, like, the eating disorder is something more like, I can control this. Like I, I can't control the depression or the anxiety or the rejection, but I can control what I'm eating or not eating. Well, yeah. And off. Yeah. I mean, there's, so there's a fair amount of research being done in Europe on, on perfectionism in dancers. Right. And um, I recently interviewed a very smart psychologist named Sana Norton Bates. We were talking about her research and she, you know, very point blank was like, you know, there are no eating disorders without perfectionism, right? It's Yeah. So, you know, what, what kind of goals are we teaching dancers to set? You know, are we, are we setting goals that are attainable, that they can actually control? Or are we trying to, to teach them that they need to be a principal dancer at New York City Ballet, right? Right. There's a lot. I mean, and I think in terms of, like, the, the timeline of mental health discussions in dance, um, you know, back in 1996, I believe it was, maybe it was 97, uh, a young Boston Ballet Corps member named Heidi um, died from complications related to an eating disorder. And I remember this moment very vividly because I was in a summer program and this was like during, you know, my development as a dancer. And after that happened, you started having the like, you know, the checking the boxes, the, the nutritionist comes in for the summer program and talks for an hour, the mental health professional comes in and talks for an hour. And that was a really great step, right? Um, yeah. You know, it kind of was the first big shift, but it hasn't changed a lot since. And, you know, I do think it's important to point out that, you know, just, um, just under a month ago, um, a gifted young dancer from the JK O School of American Ballet Theater um, took his own life. His name was mm. Lachlan Brooks, and he's a beautiful, talented man, and he was doing very, very well. He had just premiered on, on stage at the Met in a production with the company. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter how strong someone looks or how well someone's doing. Yeah, so true. You brought up so many great points i'm very excited for this episode oh, so as i'm gonna kind of get into your entrepreneurship side a little bit right okay so of course like starting a new business and working on a new mission isn't isn't easy so what have you done to sort of keep your mindset in check wow that's a good question um I could definitely be accused of not practicing what I preach very well. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm very lucky that Minding the Gap is being incubated by uh, an incubator here in Pittsburgh called Ascender. Nice. And so I do have um, uh, what they call an entrepreneur in residence who is kind of like a coach. So I do have someone who is kind of with me in the sense that when I hit a wall, I have someone to, to rant to, I suppose. Right. Um, but it is, it's really relentless. It's, it's two steps forward, one step back, sometimes two steps forward, three steps back. It's been very, it's been very challenging. You know, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. Um, I, you know, haven't paid myself in a year. I, you know, I pay the people I hire to, to do things because that's what I believe in. But you know, it's, it's a big adjustment and you have to 
really believe in what you're doing to do it. It's not worth it otherwise. Um, I have a, a friend who is the founder of a, a nonprofit here in Pittsburgh called 412 Food Rescue, which is this amazing nonprofit that, that takes food from restaurants and grocery stores that would be thrown away and brings it to, you know, places that need food. Hmm. Um, but what she says that I think is so true about entrepreneurship is once you can see the solution, you can't unsee it. Mm, so true. And that's how I feel, right? Like, it's so obvious to me. It's so plain. The need is so big um, and so, so unattended. And I, you know, after I wrote that article and it did so well, I really did realize that I was a person with a voice and, and a little bit of influence in that sense. And, and also that I have nothing to lose, you know, an artistic director being mad at me doesn't impact my life at all. Like, <laughs> True. I, I'm never putting tights on again. <laughs> um, but, you know, my friends are still dancers. You know, I, I, I talk to dancers all the time. I feel like I have just enough distance to see it very clearly. Um, but I'm close enough that I still hear and understand what the dancers are saying, and what they're going through. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just old enough to be mad and not care. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice do you have for someone that is looking to start their own business or side hustle? Uh, yeah. We like to inspire dancers to do that. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, I think that's a such an important thing and dancers are actually really good at it um, <laughs> they really are i mean you have to be organized i think dancers by their very nature are very often organized people you know you have to be able to deal with getting knocked down being oh, yeah. rejected you know dancers are pretty well acquainted with that as well um you've got to you know you've got to find your mainstays. You've got to find those people that are your rocks and nurture them. You've got to, you've got to be able to ask for help when you need it, which is hard. I think Oh yeah. Um, it's very humbling, you know, to, to start at the beginning and to need other people to kind of support you and, and blast you. And, um, and you just, you just have to have the, the humility to do that. Very true. Um, how have you dealt with doubt in your life? Whether that be like self-doubt or, you know, from friends, peers? Yeah, I, hmm, I, I joke all the time that what I'm doing, the, the line between, people say, oh, you're so brave, right? And I'm like, the line between brave and completely out of your mind is really thin, right? <laughs> And here I am, just tightrope walking, just, you know, doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, there's a lot of doubt. The doubt is endless. Um, but you, you just have to, and that's why I say you have to really believe in what it is that you're doing. Because you can doubt the moment, you can doubt the next step, you can doubt the next place you go, but you can't doubt the end point, right? Like, you can't right. doubt the, the journey you're going on, right? Um, you also have to be brave enough to take the next step and to understand that you're going to make mistakes and yeah. not everything you do is going to be a slam dunk. In fact, you're going to learn more from the things that aren't than from the things that are. Um, so true. So yeah, no, I doubt myself all the time. I mean, I, 
am very lucky to have a support group around me that will listen and, and hear me and be like, yep, that's, you know, that's understandable, but you keep going. Um, I also go to therapy, right? <laughs> <Ooh, laughs> therapy. Yay. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, it, it's, doubt isn't something you overcome. It's something you manage. Yeah. Perspective. I definitely get it. I love it. I know I've been, not doubt, but self, mm, second guessing, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like we, we sometimes can second guess the things we do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then it's just like, you know what? Just keep going and show up. Keep showing up and and keep pushing. Because most people aren't showing up. Right. <laughs> so right. as long as you keep showing up and being consistent, you're gonna be you're gonna be just fine. Yeah. And yeah. whatever that was that you're second guessing, it's done. You can't change it. I mean, if I've learned anything from that, the best part about my work is that when I have like a a work conference call, there's usually three therapists on the phone with me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they really help me put things in perspective. And okay. if I could like take, you know, one, one major thing I've taken away from all of these conversations with, with therapists. Um, it really is to just focus on the things that you can control. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's the secret sauce. That's it. I love it. Yeah. So, um, as a writer, an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. I also want to say artists. I don't know if you're still dancing or you dance for fun, but what does a day in your life look like and how do you nurture all sides of you? Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> I am. I have so many hats right now. So, um, I am also mom. I oh, a, mom. Yeah. I a, <laughs> how are you doing all this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you hear me coughing and like, <laughs> the answer to that is just barely. <laughs> Um, my, uh, my daughter is four. Um, so she's a big part of my life. It's funny when people ask if there's another one coming, I'm like, yeah, it's called finding the gap. <laughs> there's, up. Yeah, there's no other, that's it. That's the next baby. Um, but so, you know, I, my, the beginning and end of my day every day is all about my daughter and yeah. needs and, um, her demand for my attention um which is great it keeps me grounded honestly like there there are a few things in my life who that have kind of grounded me in the things that really matter the way becoming a mother has um and it also teaches you as someone who has been a perfectionist most of my life it also teaches you that you know you can't you can't sweat every little thing you're not going to survive right mm -hmm. like um so so there's that. Um, then during the day, you know, I'm, I'm doing all kinds of stuff. I, I still write, um, for the magazines for, um, dance magazine point dance spirit and dance teacher. I probably do between two and four articles a month. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I also do some fundraising consulting on the side. My oh. full-time job that I quit to, to pay myself nothing, um, <laughs> is, um, I'm like, dude, I'm breaking the illusion here. I'm like, no, my name is this big, powerful thing. Everyone still, still be entrepreneurs. 
Um, Everyone's like, no, after Kathleen's interview, I'm good, actually. I'm always going to tell the truth, but the thing is, it's only a year in, you know, like it doesn't happen overnight. Right. Um, but so I, uh, I have um, clients for fundraising. The job that I had before I stopped was as the director of development for a nonprofit. Okay. So, you know, I, I'll be working with a small nonprofit that's trying to raise money. And then in terms of the work I do for Minding the Gap, it, it varies quite a bit. Sometimes I'm on a conference call with mental health advocates and professionals from all over the world talking about trauma-informed teaching and dance, right? And then I'm on the phone with a mother who's concerned about her daughter and doesn't know how to approach her. Mm. and doesn't know how to approach leadership and I'm trying to find them the right fit for their um their support because I'm not a therapist and I'm not going to act as a therapist sometimes I'm helping a dancer craft a strategy for approaching leadership in their company about a desire for more resources that's something that happens um you know like they'll come to me and say I want to do something like I don't want to just be quiet and so I can I can help them and say okay like these are the resources. These are the people. You know, these are the players. This is how you do this without pissing people off too much. You know, <laughs> right? I still have a job. Um, this is crazy because I, I just had this conversation with a friend of mine that's in. Um, dang, I don't want to get in trouble. Well, she's in a dance. <laughs> I say the company, and then it's like, oh shoot. Yeah. Well, she's in a company, and she, you know. Like she mentioned the fact that, you know, dancers feel certain ways or they get feedback from their artistic directors and, you know, it, it's crappy and then they, they want to be able to voice their opinion, but they are also like, I can't because that's also my artistic director and I need my check. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like, I didn't realize that there were people out there who did that or figuring out ways, like everything you just said. I'm like, oh my God, this is great. I mean, that's the idea. I mean, at this point, like I'm, I'm trying to learn, you know, and some of that learning is talking through issues like that with dancers. And sometimes I can help them towards a solution. And sometimes I can't, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's a hard thing. And unfortunately, sometimes the answer is that you need to be someplace else, um, you know, and, and there are, it, you know, there are places where it's getting better for sure. Um, but no, absolutely. It's a, that's there is so much strategy involved in this um to be honest um because to reach the dancers you have to reach the leadership um i what i see often is that there are dancers that are desirous of mental health support and there are mental health practitioners that would love to reach them but they are they're 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 very cloistered in the dance environment and if we really want to make a difference we need to make actual leadership changes and i don't mean like changing who those leaders are, although sometimes that's true. But I mean, changing the way we lead, the mm-hmm. way we have those conversations. You know, you know, dance, for using the example of the fat talk, like dance, you know, sometimes, you know, there are physical requirements for, for dance and that's, that's hard, you know? And sometimes you have to have kind of a difficult conversation. But you can have conversations about how to help somebody be their physical best as opposed to saying, you know, mean things about their body. Like there are ways to have these conversations that are productive. And I think that often they just don't know how to, to talk about it correctly. 
And, you know, that's the kind of change that Minding the Gap would like to work on on the institutional level. You know, I'd love to get to a point where um, we come in and work with the leadership to do things like have roundtables with teachers and psychologists and let's talk about psychopedagogy, right? Like, let's talk about like the weight and the meaning of your words and the way you could have said something differently. I was talking with a teacher who I I respect very much and who I think cares deeply about his dancers. And I I made the comment about, you know, like, like, don't be that teacher that says you sound like a herd of elephants. Like, just like a nasty thing to say, right? Yes. And, and he laughed and he was like, oh, but it depends on like how you say it. You know, like they know I don't, and this is a really good guy. And I was like, no, no, it doesn't. Never ever say that. You know, you can say it sounds like there's a thunderstorm coming or whatever, but like anything that compares the dancers to elephants is not good. Yeah. Right. But these are things that they're saying without thinking, you know? I remember hearing that when I was get, when I was going through my ballet training. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like saying, like you said earlier, you've been saying the same thing over and over and it gets passed down. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, so true. Yeah. I mean, oh. when I was training, the, dam- the teachers with the canes was still a thing, you know? Like, <laughs> and thankfully that's going away. But it's, you know, yeah, you sound like a herd of elephants all the time. All the time. And for that dancer who's already got some body dysmorphia going on, right? That is a powerful statement, and a teacher is an incredibly powerful person. Mm-hmm. I saw my dance teachers growing up more than I saw my own parents. True. Okay. Yeah. Most definitely. So, so what was your biggest failure, and how did it help you grow? Hmm. Whoa. In dance or in this? <laughs> and we're in, in, in both, in either one? In anything. Okay. So I would say my biggest failure was I, well, I, I, I don't like the word failure because I'm in mental health. <laughs> um, well, we're leading towards the, the learning experience and the growth. Right. Right. That's the, right. That's the end goal to get to. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. So. Uh, years ago, I wrote an article about body criticism for dance magazine, wherein several dancers, I think there were four dancers in that article who trusted me with their stories. And it was very, it's a very raw thing to talk about is about body criticism. And one dancer in particular was sharing very specific information about uh, a, a director who had been kind of abusive in the way that he spoke about her body. And she was willing to go on the record with his name. She was fine with that. Um, you know, that was not ultimately the decision that was made in the way that the article was published mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm sure for liability reasons or whatever. Mm. Um, and as a result, basically every director who had ever worked with her was put into question. Oh, right. Wow because there's no, no one named, so there's an implication. And I, I couldn't necessarily have changed the outcome of that in terms of what was ultimately published. I guess I could have been more communicative with her to help her kind of prepare. And I could have been more hands-on in 
insisting that the language appear in a certain way in the in the editing process and you know I, I learned a lot about about myself and all of that I mean one this happened when I was a, a fairly young writer I was fairly new right so um, I wasn't as pushy as I am now um, but I guess in a way that's part of the reason that I am pushy now because I've had an experience like that and I'm not I'm not faulting the magazine I'm not really faulting anyone it was it was the circumstance right and but I do wish that I had insisted some of the language appear slightly differently and I, I think it taught me that you know when I'm sure of something not to speak as though I'm unsure right um, that's something that I think we as women and especially we as women who have grown up in the dance world are pretty poor at sometimes and I think also just to, it gave me an even greater sense of empathy for the people that I interview. Yeah. And the responsibility that I have, which I've always taken very seriously, but took on a new meaning. Yeah, what a touching story. So what's your greatest aha moment hmm. and how did it help you grow? Hmm. So I'm calculating how, how, how much honesty to give here I'm not honesty but how much information um okay so I had been working with I'd been working with a particular professional ballet company for about a year and a half trying to work toward implementing a mental health program with them to help their dancers mm -hmm. and I had gone through the gauntlet with them um at least six meetings you know everybody and their mother comes in and gives their opinion and I had to have very difficult conversations. I was accused of being on a witch hunt, um, which is not true, by the way. It's not my goal at all. I just want to support the dancers. One person said, you know, who knows what this will dig up. Like lots of really, mm. lots of really kind of upsetting, eye-opening things. Like I knew it would be difficult, but it was more difficult than I thought. And I reached a point with them. I wanted to do my research with their dancers. So essentially the exchange is you get three years of this like Cadillac mental health program for free. And in exchange, we get to measure it, you know, yes. to see if it's effective. And in the end, um, they were asking me for this level of detail on the work that we were going to do that, that started to make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I was kind of like, I feel like we're kind of past the point of like, yeah, let's move forward together here. And I felt uncomfortable enough that I'd agreed that I would give them all the detail of the program, but that, you know, I wanted a, a non-disclosure, you know, because they hadn't signed on the dotted line, you know, you know, you haven't made a formal agreement um, and they wouldn't sign it. Mm. And what I realized was that they really liked my idea. But that they wanted it to, they wanted to own it, right? Like they wanted to control it um, and they wanted credit for it. And that was super eye-opening for me, partly because it actually gave me some hope. It was like, okay, you guys think this is a good enough idea that you might want to steal it. Like that's, that's good. Um, and partly because, I don't know, it just, when you're, when you're in an altruistic mindset and you're trying to help people, it's always shocking when you realize someone's maybe trying to be somehow cunning or deceptive, right? Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, it, it taught me to, to guard myself a little bit more. 
You know, that story, how like the universe brings these things on. So in class, we had alumni come in and something she said was, be sure to protect your ideas. That was like Thursday. Mm. And then you just told this story. And then I came to my mother, you know, not so long ago, and she was like, Sherelle, you have to be careful. And it's so, it's just so, and I keep hearing this. Because that's so true. Like, you get passionate about helping everybody. And so you're just like, or helping the people that you want to help. And so you start sharing. And you don't really think, hey, someone could take this from you. Yeah. So and that helped me out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know. It's hard because, you know, you don't want to, like, hide your idea away in this little vacuum world where it'll never grow. And, you know, you have to talk about things to, to, to see them progress and to do them well for feedback and all of that. Um, but you really do have to, you know, my guts told me that, that this leadership was not going to be supportive, right? And mm -hmm. my guts were yelling multiple times prior to this. And I just kept pushing because I wanted so badly for it to work. Right. And frankly, if something, if something, I don't, how do I phrase this? Of course, it's going to be difficult, but it shouldn't feel impossible. Right. Right. And if it feels impossible, and I think this is true in almost anything, if it feels impossible, then you need to try and do it someplace else or under different circumstances. A word. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So uh, what advice would present day Kathleen give Kathleen when you originally started? Wow, it's only been a year. Well, yeah, let's do a year. When you originally started minding the gap, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, patience, dear one, patience. <laughs> you know, everyone says it takes longer than you think it should take and all of that. Um, and, you know, that's true. But there's there's also necessity in that because there's, nuance that you discover along the way that is important right yeah. and you're building a foundation right and everything you build on top of this foundation is going to rely upon it and you can't you can't do that quickly right like when they build a house the foundation it takes them longer to do to dig that hole and and get it all set up than it does to actually you know build up the house and it's the same thing so i think i think i would I'd want to give her a hug and kind of pat her on the head a little bit and be like, just hang in there. <laughs> I'll take it. I will take it. So where can dancers find you? Absolutely. So uh, we have a website. We uh, are And the website has, uh, you can see all of our research there. Um, we have two surveys that we've done, one with nearly 900 dancers and the other with 350 dancers. And um, that is all freely available on our website and on social media. I'm deeply dedicated to the free sharing of my research. Um, you know, while Minding the Gap is my business, um, this movement is much bigger than me. And I need, you know, we need every drop of water to raise the ship, right? And right. I want every single person that, that wants to make a case for mental health for dancers to have access to the data that I've wanted. So that's there. And then there's also uh, a page of resources where dancers can find um, mental health resources um, to 
you know, to, to find a therapist if they need to, um, to their articles, there, links to things like the suicide prevention hotline, the Emily program, stuff like that. Um, I'm also on Instagram. Uh, we are minding and Twitter and on Facebook. Nice. Very nice. So dancers, listeners, please reach out, utilize those resources so that we can all glow up together and take care of ourselves. Well, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so, so much. I learned and benefited so much. I know my listeners will as well. You are an amazing soul, man. Thank you so much. It's very sweet. I really appreciate being here and and I appreciate the work that you do as well. So keep it up. We got, we all got to keep fighting. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of The Art of Body Language. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Art of Body Language podcast. I truly appreciate you taking the time to listen to my show. If you enjoyed this episode and you believe it would benefit an artist that you know, please be sure to share it with them. As always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at smile underscore love underscore live. If you'd like to connect further, you can also email me at theartofbodylanguage at gmail.com. Thank you, and make sure to tune in to our next episode. Have a beautiful day.